Welcome to the Grow Your Practice podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Chad Madden, owner of Madden Physical Therapy and Breakthrough. Join me each week as we dive into the best practices, systems, principles, tips, and tricks to help you grow your private practice. Hey, everybody, this is Chad Madden with the Grow Your Practice podcast. And today uh, we have two very special guests uh, with 8150 Advisors. Uh, and our guests are Steve Stalzer and Mike Pekatowski. Did I get the uh, pronunciation yeah. right there, you Mike? You got it. You got okay. it. So um, both Mike and uh, Steve have a long history within uh, physical therapy, doing mergers and acquisitions. Um, they've been on both sides of the table as well. And I think this, if you're thinking of selling your practice uh, within the next few years, this, uh, this is going to be an enlightening conversation. So welcome to the call here. Thanks, Chad. And uh, Steve, can you go through and, and give us a little, uh, at least history of how, of, of your PT career, how you matriculated up to this point and, um, and your involvement with 8150? Yeah, you bet. So the short version is, um, Graduated from PT school in, in 97, started out as a treating PT, uh, moved kind of quickly into management side of things and joined in 2001, a uh, practice that was in Vail, Colorado. At the time we had four clinics, about 15 therapists and um, slowly started buying into that practice or, or maybe quickly started buying into that practice. Um, entered that in a management role and then uh, quickly on the ownership side um, we had a couple partners, uh, two that were um, uh, slowly phasing out of the business, but, but stayed on for the next 10 years or so. Um, and at that time, we were very, you know, what I consider opportunistic about growth. We we're opening a clinic every you know, year, maybe every other year, but really doing it in a fashion that was, you know, as things presented themselves. Um, and as we grew and as we invested in ourselves, um, you know, we got a lot of help. Uh, both from in and outside the industry, um, different consulting groups, different executive coaches, different people with strategic planning. We really phased into more of a, a strategic growth um, phase of the company and um, eventually grew it uh, over the next 14 years to where we had 35 clinics across four states, um, became much more intentional in building value along the way, not just growing for the sake of growing. Uh, we did several acquisitions, uh, worked with an outside group that, that helped us kind of clarify our goals around what we were looking for in acquisitions and, you know, and again, do it more strategically rather than just, you know, seeing who was out there looking to sell. Um, we did a couple hospital MSAs, a couple hospital joint ventures. Um, so really a pretty unique practice, but continued to invest, you know, in our leadership team and in understanding the business side of it. And we successfully sold that practice in 2015, um, spent a couple of years uh, working with ATI on strategic partnerships, and then started 8150 and, and really assembled a team of, of past owners and a pretty unique team that has been very successful in their practices. Um, and our goal is to you know, help others uh, learn from the mistakes we've made, learn from some of the things we did right. Um, but really help other owners, you know, grow the value of their business or realize the value of their practice, you know, through a transaction. So that was really the, the impetus to start 8150 and, and pull the team together, which uh, started about three years ago. Nice. Uh, quick 
fill in the gap. Uh, MSA is for those of us that don't know managed service agreement. Yes. No. Okay. And no. yeah, go ahead. If you can explain what that is. Yep. Yeah. So we had a couple, you know, management contracts with hospitals, a couple with um, physician groups, and we, we may touch on that when we talk about acquisitions and value. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was, was a unique piece of our practice was we, we had freestanding clinics, um, you know, uh, kind of a variety. And um, a few of those were MSAs, a few of those were joint ventures, which can really change the value of a practice. So that was something that we had to kind of look at, you know, within our own, uh, within our own organization. And some of those were, were great cash cows, but they weren't necessarily adding value to the business. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we had a couple of both. And same question for you, Mike. And th the question was basically fill in the gaps of how you got to uh, from PT school to where you're at. Yeah. So uh, my uh, story is very similar to Steve's with the exception. Uh, I did also graduated in 97. The, the main difference is I worked primarily with the, the larger PT practices and worked my way through the ranks there, uh, held various uh, progressively uh, um, progressive operational positions, uh, ultimately uh, managing about 55 locations in Western PA and Eastern Ohio. Um, did a, uh, a stint where I was doing consulting work for hospitals and helping them with their outpatient rehabilitation programs. And that's where I got a taste for, uh, you know, valuing practices as, as hospitals wanted to look at potentially acquiring some practices around their, uh, you know, around their facilities. Um, and then in 2014, uh, I got the opportunity to move into uh, an M&A role, mergers and acquisitions role, um, and um, have been in that, that uh, part of the business ever since. Um, and since that time, I've, uh, I've been the lead M&A uh, person point person for 45 deals that have closed. Nice. And it, I, I think I know the answer to this, but are you on the sell, the acquiring side or the selling side? I was, I was the guy that was buying the, the practices for, for the larger big box corporations. Great. Um, We'll avoid the names <laughs> just just for now, unless you wanted to share there. But uh, I, I think at, at least reading uh, on the website, your history, everybody would be would widely recognize um, what you've worked with in the past. Um, you, you talked, Steve, you mentioned something about the value of the practice and how, um, you know, you can have a contract, an MSA that may be very uh fruitful or profitable in terms of being a cash cow, but it doesn't necessarily carry over the same transactional value. Can you go into that uh, a little bit more? You bet. Um, so, you know, I think most listeners are, are probably somewhat familiar with understanding the, the value of a PT clinic or the, the process for that. Um, you know, we, we tend to see a lot of, um, uh, a lot of owners that will come to us, they've maybe had an offer or they've had their CPA do evaluation. And we're really looking at the value from a buyer standpoint, because that's really what's most relevant for, for most owners today is, you know, if they're going to sell their practice, 
you know, how do the strategic partners, the, the bigger groups look at valuing a business? And so that really comes down to, you know, a, a multiple of, of adjusted EBITDA. And, you know, I think you and Paul Welk talked about this pretty recently. Um, and, uh, you know, getting from net ordinary income to EBITDA and then looking at adjustments is, you know, is a relatively straightforward process. It does, does understand knowing, you know, the, the adjustments and, and what is counted. Um, and, and then the, you know, the trickier part is looking at the multiple, um, you know, and, and again, you and Walk touched on several of the things, you know, leadership growth rate. Um, one of those unique considerations is, uh, you know, is special contracts, service agreements, things that anything that has a 60 day out, a 90 day out, a 180 day out, um, you know, really has to be looked at differently than, you know, a freestanding outpatient PT clinic. And, uh, you know, I think oftentimes owners don't realize that even if they've had a, you know, a contract in place for five years, 10 years, that might be valued, you know, with a different set of multiples because that risk, you know, is higher associated with cancellation of it. Um, you know, and, and I can give an example to owners, you know, we had a, we had a 13 year MSA that when that came to an end, um, you know, it was, it was a, a 180 day, you know, contract was terming, didn't get renewed. Um, and that was a, you know, 12, 13 clinic, um, contract. So, you know, it isn't necessarily just size or longevity that, that impact that value. Um, and so, you know, it's important to understand those. Uh, there's a lot of dynamics that go into that, but it is a, it is kind of a unique asterisk that, uh, that we place, uh, when we're looking at the value of a business. Got it. And this, I'm very ignorant with regards to MSAs. Um, just, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know how to look at it, but, um, is the, you, you talked about, it's a different set of multiples when you're, uh, considering that, it, it, is it fair to say that it's a reflection of the cash value of the agreement? So it, if I have a two-year agreement, then it's the multiples roughly going to be a, the value of that? that yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of factors that go into it, um, but, but understanding the length of it, understanding how long it's been in place, understanding, you know, what, what are the outs? Um, you know, a lot of those will have, um, you know, termination, uh, very specific termination language. So, you know, if we were looking at uh, the value, let's just say, you know, if you had an MSA tucked into your business, you know, we'd actually want to look at the language in that contract, um, you know, specific for that, you know, one clinic or that segment of your practice. Um, we, we want to just lump it into uh, you know, the total business and, and apply the same multiple that, that the rest of your practice may get. So it really, it really gets into understanding the contract language, the relationship, um, you know, is it with one entity or is it, you know, a number of those, uh, do you have a number of those in place with, with different, um, uh, you know, different health systems, different physician groups. So a lot of dynamics that go into it. Um, you know, in our practice, um, that, that was essentially a, a significant piece of our business, you know, out of the gate when I joined. And so we were just very intentional that as we we're building our value and as we we're looking at strategic planning over time, you know, we were just 
leveraging that part of the business to grow other aspects that have more value. So I think sometimes, um, you know, there's more and more service agreements, you know, uh, take place as that becomes, you know, more common with, with hospitals to outsource PT. It's just, it's important to step back from it and understand, you know, are you building value, um, you know, at the same rate and, and um, you know, just understanding the dynamics of that, even within MSAs, there's, there's things you can do to, uh, you know, to make them more valuable. We switched, really started focusing more on a joint venture model, you know, for the, the purpose of enhancing value rather than just cash position, um, you know, very much for that reason. So a few things like that, that can be helpful to understand, you know, as you're building a business so that, you know, uh, you're, you're building a business that you're intending to build. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Mike, anything to add in there? Yeah, I would. I would just add, um, you know, at, from a buyer's perspective, um, an MSA is a paper transaction. You know, and and that can be, um, you know, depending on the terms of that agreement, can be canceled relatively easily. So that's where the risk, you know, from a buyer's perspective, is perceived. And then, you know, something along the lines of a joint venture is a much more complex vehicle. You're married at that point, you know, with the MSA, you're dating with the option to get out and, and with the JV, you're married at that point. And it's a, it is a, a much, much more solid um, relationship, uh, much more formal relationship that's going to be valued a lot more aggressively than a, than a paper contract. Great. And uh, thank you both for that. By the way, that, that was a huge aha moment for me, only because I've seen private practices have the MSA in place and use it as a cash vehicle to fund their outpatient growth. And I never understood what they were doing, but that, now that makes a, a ton of sense. So thank you for that. Um, Steve, you wrote an article uh, in Impact, which I think is ultimately, if we go back far enough, that's how uh, this, you ended up being a, a guest here on the, the podcast. Um, in that, you, you talked about a three or four step process. If I'm an owner and I'm thinking about selling, how do I do that? And I, I want to get very specific because I think uh, when we look at our, uh, who's listening to this, um, I've talked with owners that are uh, not being realistic in their evaluation of their company. It's you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I need, you know, 1.5 million to retire. Therefore, my practice is worth 1.5 million. Now, obviously I'm exaggerating a bit, hopefully, but uh, I've, I've had those conversations. So if I were doing, let's say I have a, a, a $2 million practice, um, roughly 15% uh, 15% margin, and I have 300K in EBITDA, what would that, how do I think through getting my practice uh, positioned to sell over the next uh, two to five years? Great question. And I think you, you teed it up exactly. Uh, we, we get a lot of calls that, that kind of start out that way. Um, and, um, you know, understanding the value, like, like you said, is a, is a big first step. Um, and, you know, I think the best way to, to understand value is not necessarily have a, a buyer tell you, you know, what they're going to pay you for it, but, but to really, you know, break down uh, the pieces 
of value. So there's going to be things like growth rate, like leadership, um, like succession plan, um, you know, compliance risk, um, you know, what's in the pipeline for future growth, um, how stable, you know, is the revenue, um, how stable are the metrics, you know, is the, is the clinic firing on all cylinders. But what, once you, once you have a good understanding of the value, you know, we really break it into, you know, four key phases. One, one is preparation um, that includes understanding the value. Second one is marketing. Um, third is, you know, negotiations. And then, you know, fourth is due diligence and closing. And I think sometimes people, um, uh, you know, don't, don't understand the level of complexity in each of those steps. And, and so they go into, a transaction trying to jump straight to price and maybe they haven't you know done all of their prep uh you know to make sure the practice is you know is really kind of optimized and ready for sale um they haven't identified you know who are the potential buyers and you know they maybe start engaging with one buyer rather than looking at all their options um and and so you know the, the the key areas that we can probably talk about one would be, you know, preparation and then, you know, kind of go, go deeper past that. Um, what, what we'll typically do in that phase um, is kind of go through the same way a buyer would, you know, we'll go through a full data request. We'll look at new patients. We'll look at visits. We'll look at trends over time. We'll look at ratios of, you know, labor of rent. We'll look at growth rates. Um, really to try to get an understanding, you know, from a buyer's perspective. And, and we've got a, you know, a unique advantage in having Mike on the team because, you know, he's been in that buyer's seat for so long um, that, you know, it really kind of uh, is just a natural fit to, you know, to look at, you know, how are the buyers going to view this? Um, we also want to make sure that, you know, the, the owner has clarified, you know, what their goals are. Um, you know, why are they looking for a partner? You know, why is now the right time? And it can be a variety of reasons. It doesn't just have to be, you know, retirement or that age. You know, it could be that they now have a, a significant, you know, portion of their family's assets in one industry, in one company, in one market. And they're just looking to diversify and, and provide some stability, you know, within their family's portfolio. Um, but, you know, th that initial kind of preparation, clarifying the owner's goals, um, making sure that legal counsel has been, you know, uh, discussed and, and brought on board, um, making sure that, you know, they've got uh, legal counsel that, that, is, um, uh, that is experienced in M&A, um, you know, which is a complete, you know, specialty within, uh, you know, within counsel. Um, and then from there, you know, it's identifying, you know, who are the potential buyers, um, you know, getting to know a little bit about each one. And I think between Mike and I, we've either worked with, for, or, you know, interacted with, you know, with almost all of them out there. Um, so we can give, you know, owners some insight into, you know, who might be a better fit for them. Um, from there, it really goes into, you know, preparing marketing material. Um, uh, You'll often hear, you know, deal books or SIMS, which is just confidential information memorandum. Um, you know, even understanding the lingo in this phase can be helpful. You know, just understanding how the process works, 
what the options are in terms of, you know, selling the practice versus rolling equity, um, you know, the kind of common, uh, common desire for, you know, the owners to stay on for that transition. Um, and then also, you know, preparing for due diligence, you know, we know 90%, you know, maybe 95% of what a buyer is going to ask for, you know, from P&Ls to balance sheets to tax statements. Um, uh, you know, so if we can help an owner prepare for that, then the deal itself, you know, the transaction actually happens at a, at a quicker pace because the owner's prepared, you know, you avoid that deal fatigue, you avoid, you know, something, uh, something getting missed, um, you know, either on a compliance uh, in a compliance bucket or, or in a, you know, financial bucket that, you know, the last thing you want to happen is an owner gets under an LOI and a deal gets killed because, you know, somebody didn't uh, catch a compliance concern or, you know, the, the, the price gets changed because maybe there was a misunderstanding on, you know, on ad backs or, you know, some financial aspect was misrepresented. Um, so I know that's a lot of topics, but those are, those are kind of the, you know, the categories under preparation that, uh, that we start thinking about. There. Can I dive into some of those? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the most, uh, one of the hottest buzz conversation pieces is pitfalls. So you don't have to share anything specific, but you mentioned some really good ones and their compliance. Um, I know personally, when we were uh, positioning a few years ago, we brought in BCMS, Mary DeLong, had them do, uh, literally Mary flew into Harrisburg, not the destination capital of the world here, but, uh, and went through everything for us and, and found some things that we were able to improve upon. Um, is there anything else that, if again, if I'm that $2 million in rev, private practice owner that you see the most common in terms of I'm really missing out on something here. Maybe it's a billing practice. Maybe it's, uh, it, maybe I have uh, underutilized space or rent or something that I'm not thinking about there. Wh whatever those top two or three pitfalls that come to mind for both of you, I, that would be very valuable. Mike, you want to go ahead? Yeah. So um, some of it's geographic dependent. Um, so for instance, there are certain states that have uh, significant regulatory requirements for facilities or, or whatnot. So um, I have seen you know, deals that uh, have had some issues with the facilities themselves um, that weren't up to compliance and you know, a transaction re require major overhaw of the facilities. So you know, things that would catch the, the seller off guard um, the other main issue that we see often is, is uh, coding, uh, coding issues. Um, and that can be overutilization, underutilization, um, can be a lot of different things. Um, but if you think about it from a buyer's perspective, if there's a coding issue that's being overutilized or underutilized compared to the way that the buyer typically likes to see those, um, those codes flow through a, through a normal course of treatment, um, that re also represents a, 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 um, you know, a process of change. 
Um, and so something, some of that stuff is very easily, easily remedied via education, but some of it's more of a cultural change. And so, you know, a buyer will, will want to ascertain if there's, if it's, if it's more of a cultural issue, that's going to be a pro problem for them versus a, you know, or just an education opportunity. Um, the other areas that um, we see are a lot of the contracts um, that are that they have. It might be something simple with a lease um, or a, a, an aquatics facility. Um, you know, making sure that those leases um, are are uh, up to up to speed and passing all the all the different um, regulations from the state and and national levels. Um, there are just some things that people miss. Um, they, they're not through any fault of their own. They just didn't understand or didn't know. And they set something up. Um, probably a prime example I've seen is with aquatics leases. These, these need to be set up very specifically with CMS regulations in mind. And if they're set up properly, they're great assets to, to your organization. If they're not set up properly, and then they need to be renegotiated during the transaction. That's a that's that's a, a definite yellow flag, if not a red flag, um, particularly if there's a lot of revenue tied into those uh, into those um, facilities. Um, Mike, Mike, can I just want to clarify on that because this has come up, and I've been through this. Uh, although we didn't, we just we decided not to do it. That it was too far out of our scope of focus, but. Um, that would be like uh, you mentioned CMS. So that would be like some sort of anti-kickback violation that I'm paying based on pool usage uh, for their uh, aquatic therapeutic exercise. Correct. It needs okay. to be in the guidelines that CMS sets up for aquatics. They're, they're very specific for aquatics. And then on the flip side of that, you know, you also have some OIG or Stark um, um, pieces where, you know, um, um, not necessarily just with aquatics, but with, with other leases, that if you have a lease that is, there, there's a physician owner um, involved, um, you know, if that physician, that physician, regardless if they're a referral source or not, you know, um, there's a layer of complication that you need to make sure that you've gone through all the, the, proper, the proper channels and have that lease set up properly Otherwise, it could be considered, you know, some kind of Stark or OIG um, violation, or, or you know, definitely going to add risk to a transaction. Fair enough. Any other pitfalls that came up for you, Mike? I know I interrupted interrupted <laughs> you there. Um, those are the those are the ones that I see most common. I don't know, Steve. If there's any others that that you've seen along the way that you wanted to point out? What What are the bad states? <laughs> Am I allowed to ask you that one? <laughs> There are some that are more difficult than others. Okay. Uh, Ca California tends to be challenging uh, and Massachusetts tends to be challenging. I, I, I would guess New York, but. New York is also challenging. Um, again, you're, 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 but for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Thanks, Mike. And Chad, I was gonna add, you know, we're, we're pretty fortunate. Um, one of our partners, uh, so we had a few different names in our business before we sold it, but ProAxis Therapy was was kind of the, the longest standing of those. And one of our partners in that business was a gal named Robbie Leonard. Um, we pulled Robbie into our team at 8150 and, and 
probably three quarters of her work today is doing compliance due diligence for buyers. And so, you know, she's typically working for private equity groups or larger acquirers to, you know, to do the, the compliance portion of due diligence. So we actually leverage Robbie to help us, you know, prepare sellers and make sure that they've had a once over and any compliance issues that, you know, that, that might come up late in the game that we just button those up, you know, from the start. Um, you know, Mike touched on a lot of those. Um, and you just, you, you see things that often it's the owners don't realize that they're doing something that, that you know, is a red flag or, or a concern to a buyer. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you ever want to have Robbie on and just do a whole session on compliance prep for acquisitions, um, uh, she, she, she and Mary and Nancy Beckley are, are you know, three of the, the kind of leading experts in that area. And we could definitely get Robbie on here if that would help. Yeah, that would be great. Um, I, I will share, Mike, you mentioned the coding issues. The, the most common one that, uh, and you said it's an education process and it was for me, is the 97140 times one or two and then 97110 times three. So it's two units of manual, two units of Therax, stays the same for all eight, 12, 15 visits and the entire clinic is doing it, that. So um, I, Mary had a term for it. Uh, I think it's called redundant coding, uh, where you just keep doing the same thing over and over. Just And it's, it's not that therapists are bad or owners are bad or anything like that, but it's especially at that, you know, one to maybe even $5 million run rate, it's very easy to be focused on so many other things that we have to juggle as business owners that we can kind of take our eye off the ball with just ethical or um, proper coding for like compliant coding. Uh, that's, that's a great point. We look, you know, we'll look at charge diversity, whether, whether it's on the M&A side, somebody getting ready to sell, or whether it's, you know, somebody that we're just helping them build value in their business to look at, you know, what, what does that charge diversity look like? Because even, even in a clinic where it looks like it's in that mid range across the, the whole clinic, you often find that there's a couple therapists, you know, that maybe overutilize a couple codes and whether they're leaving dollars on the table or, or just not using the right codes, um, you know, associated with the patient's, you know, problem list. Um, usually that's an opportunity to improve. Um, you know, and we also pick up some codes sometimes that are, are being used, you know, improperly. Um, you know, and, and the easiest way to pick that up is we'll look at reports, look at percentages of code utilization, see how that compares to, you know, kind of the standards. And, um, you know, again, for us, we're fortunate that we can float those past Robbie and, and, you know, she, uh, you know, she marry people, you know, people that are certified in healthcare compliance, you know, can just, you know, scan through those and, and see, hey, is that going to fall outside the norms? Is that going to raise a red flag? And then, you know, follow up with questions to make sure that if it is outside the norm, is it, you know, being used appropriately? Um, but we've, we've, you know, we've seen deals get delayed, get repriced, get killed um, when people, uh, you know, are, are not following the rules. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, there's just, there's so many roles out there. How do you keep up with them all? And that just really is not the answer you want to be giving, you know, when you're 
in the in the late stage of trying to sell your business, you want to make sure that you've gotten all those things you know dialed in. Not not only for you know compliance while you're running it, but like we said, you know those can a lot of those can kill deals. Yeah, I, th there's another uh, just a general universal principle that seems super obvious, but that I've noticed uh, the amount of prep that goes in and including outside expertise that goes into the deal really makes all the difference for the owner um, that walks away feeling good about it. Um, and I now, I know there's varying opinions on that. I've heard, uh, I, I have a mentor who is uh, ridiculously successful in uh, commercial real estate. And he said the, the more deals that he went to over time, he realized that if both people walk away from the closing, a little irritated that they could have potentially done better, that that's about the, the best that's going to happen. So I'm not sure that's true or not, but I can tell you the owners that are the happiest once uh, everything is signed, they, they put the most work in, the most prep in, and they went into it. Some people I know that had bad earnouts or, you know, didn't really fully realize their, uh, their, the value or the equity uh, the capital that they were expecting on the back end, they tended to be the ones that walked into it and were led by a buyer the whole way through the process and never did their own homework. And that that's unfortunate. Any anything you want to say there? Yeah, I would say that um, you know the preparation is a critical piece, and I think sometimes people, you know, especially when we get a call and someone says, "Hey, I've got a you know I've got an LOI." Um, what we find is, you know, exactly like you said, the more time you spend understanding, you know, the way the deals are going to be structured, understanding the value of the business, understanding what's going to come, you know, in, in the way of due diligence, being prepared for that, you know, it, it can almost feel like a full-time job in and of itself, just, you know, just working through the deal. Um, we always, you know, really try and clarify as many of those things as we can in the LOI phase so that there's not, uh, you know, last minute negotiations around, um, you know, we haven't discussed the non-compete. We haven't discussed, you know, what the employment agreement is going to look like. Um, I always give people an example, you know, most companies have a PTO liability that they don't even think about. Um, maybe they don't even carry it on their balance sheet, you know, for, for a smaller practice. Most don't. Um, but at closing, you know, you've accrued this PTO liability that, you know, that the buyer now has to assume. And so, you know, things like that are typically, you know, either paid out at closing or, you know, deducted from the purchase price. And, and if you haven't thought through that, you know, and you're selling your, your clinic, you might feel like, man, I'm getting nickel and dimed, you know, at the end of this, um, understanding asset allocation, um, understanding what your tax liability is going to be, um, you know, and, and then just being prepared so that you can navigate all of that as efficiently as you can, you know, you're going to have legal bills, you're going to have accounting bills, but, but trying to go through that in a prepared fashion really, you know, allows you to be better prepared to, uh, you know, uh, maintain as many of those you know, as much of that sales price as you can and not be scrambling to get the deal done. And then, you know, in, in the end, spending more on, 
on legal accounting and and other areas just because of because of a lack of preparation um you know it's it's uh just like opening a clinic, the more prepared you are, you know, to open a successful clinic, you know, the, the faster that's going to grow and, and, you know, hit the targets you want. Um, Mike, anything you would add to that? Yeah, I would just say, you know, it's never too early to start your exit plan. Um, you know, uh, even if you've just recently started your practice, you know, having a five or, or 10 year plan, and start to educate yourself about the process is going to be uh, critically important. The more you understand about the process, the more you understand about um, um, what you need to do for your practice to build value, um, the better position you're gonna be and the more confident you're gonna be um, in the end. And that's, uh, you can't start soon enough, you just can't. Um, I don't care if you just started your practice a year ago, or if you, you know, been at it for 20 years, you just can't start, you just can't start soon enough. And I, I think that's wise, uh, Mike, I, I've just seen that happen too often where I'm going to wait until I'm, you know, in my late sixties or seventies to walk away. And it's, uh, often not, not pleasant. Um, it, it might also help to, to note that, you know, the typical time between when somebody starts talking to a buyer and when the deal closes, it's generally somewhere, you know, between four to six months, if you know what you're doing. Um, if you don't, that can drag out and that's where you can start to risk deal fatigue and on both sides. Um, there, there are lots of different challenges. Um, I would say, you know, I've always told folks start at least a year before you're ready to go, um, at least a year. And that way it gives you time to gather your information and start to get prepared. Great. Uh, you, you mentioned something around growth rate as a factor for uh, determining multiple or EBITDA. Um, I, I had never really asked about this before, but in all of your deals, is there a growth rate of a company that you saw where you said, hey, there's really something here um, on, on the, in terms of the high bar? And is there something that is, uh, you know, the Mendoza line, um, if we're going to use a baseball analogy. Um, for all of our listeners, I'm not sure you can see this, but Mike's background is, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a single A. Uh, his son plays uh, minor league baseball. That's a Picture oh no, that's team. just his travel team. He doesn't play minor. He's playing in oh, a minor I, league stadium. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I misunderstood the story, but uh, it's a beautiful baseball field. So, um, having said that, uh, yeah, is there a growth rate that is amazing that you know would uh, alert the buyer? Hey, there's really something going on here, or and is there something that's low that alerts the buyer? Hey, this is a this is a liability. You know, uh, I'll let Mike follow up with his comments on this, but, you know, what I often tell uh, owners is, you know, we're in a growing industry, right? You know, on, on average, PT is growing, you know, three to 7% annually. So, you know, depending on your market, um, you know, you could be growing one or 2% and actually losing market share. Um, and, you know, what, what you, every clinic's gonna be different, every market's gonna be different, um, but being able to demonstrate, you know, a history of growth, you know, looking at that in the numbers, 
you know, and, and really across the board, you know, new patients visits and revenue. Um, and, you know, it, it's very tough to, to, you know, try and sell at the peak, you know, um, you're in, in most cases, you know, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get a better value and, and attract more buyers. If, if you're selling at a time when you're, you know, still in a strong growth rate, then, then, where you've peaked, plateaued, and, and maybe starting to take a step backwards. Um, you know, it's, so every market's different. I don't have just a, a general number, but, you know, I, I usually use that, you know, if they're below, you know, three or 4%, um, you know, are there reasons for that? Um, you know, are they keeping up with, you know, with the market share that they had previously in that market? Um, and then, you know, do they have new clinics in the pipeline? Um, you know, clinics that are in, you know, seven, eight, 10%, you know, growth rate. I mean, that, that's very attractive to buyers um, because they can look at it and they can say, hey, you know, we're paying X today, but in three, four years, we're gonna look back and, you know, this thing's gonna be, you know, twice as much revenue, twice as much EBITDA, you know, our effective multiple, you know, in the rear view mirror is gonna be lower than what we, you know, paid for it at the time. Um, uh, you know, so it, it really depends, but, um, you know, sub three or four, you know, may take some explaining and then, you know, above five and in that, in that seven, eight range usually gets, you know, buyers a little bit more excited about, uh, you know, the potential for the future. Like, yeah, I would just add that the year, year, year over year growth, um, is very attractive. To, to buyers. So you see that five, five to 10% growth year over year. And, and the chart looks like this. That's, that's, that's great. That's exactly what, what buyers are looking for. Um, you know, what's not attractive is flat or, or going backwards. Um, the exception being COVID. Um, obviously everyone saw a contraction during, during that period. Um, but but at the end of the day, if you are have a practice that's going backwards, it's 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 gonna it's gonna impact the ability to to command a, a multiple on that practice. Um, I I wanted the upper bar to be twenty percent, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll have to have some tough conversations. All right, um, fair enough. So I want to get into uh, what we had talked about. Um, and the prep call for this, which is the, I'm a $10 million practice in rev and I'm looking to acquire. Um, I thought I had another question. It's gone. So let's go. Oh, uh, current state of deal flow. Um, you're, you're obviously in the M&A industry from both ends. And Mike, you mentioned the pandemic. I know it's a hot topic for owners to be thinking, Hey, by the way, you know, January of 2020, I was going to start planning my exit in two to five years. And now I was greatly derailed. How's this affecting things? Is the, is the market coming back? Um, the M&A market coming back? What's it, or, you know, am I gonna be forced to sell now because I can't figure out how to navigate the pandemic or recover? My practice wasn't resilient. You know, what, what are you seeing in the marketplace right now? So um, I, I, the, the market is very active right now um you know there, it did hit a pause during the covid 
period and, and most deals that were in progress stalled or, or were on hold for, for quite some time. Um, but starting in Q4, we started to see some of those deals close uh, Q4 of last year and then rolling into Q1 of this year, um, we've seen quite a, quite a bit of activity. Um, and I think you're going to see that um, as, as COVID becomes more and more uh, or less and less, I should say, impactful, um, I think you're going to see that trajectory in, increase. So this is a, actually a pretty good time to, to consider exiting right now. The, the multiples have not been um, significantly impacted by COVID. Um, um, maybe a little bit of the deal structure has changed a little bit um, because, you know, if you're not fully back from COVID, there may be a little bit more of an earnout or something like that. But, but the multiples themselves are very, very healthy. And um, the activity, there's quite a few buyers out there right now who are extremely active um, and a few more that are gonna, going to come back online here um, as COVID becomes more and more uh, managed. Great. Anything to add there, Steve, or can I ask my $10 million question? No, no, I think Mike covered that one pretty well. Um, uh, yeah, I think you covered that perfectly. I think, you know, we're, we always tell guys that, you know, it has to be the right time for them. Um, you know, it's been a good time to sell for the last 10 years. I think, you know, sometimes people get uh, tired of hearing this is the best year ever, you know, um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, I think as there's been more and more deals in PT, you've seen a lot more, you know, most of our clients get solicitations every month from, you know, M&A advisors telling them, you know, now's the, now's the time. Um, but it is, um, you know, it, it is, we're, we're starting to see multiples, um, uh, you know, they're not significantly rising year over year, you know, like they did, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, uh, you know, they, they've, they're in a very healthy range compared to other industries. Um, like Mike said, the dynamics are, are really good right now and that there's a lot of buyers who are active um uh probably as many as we've ever seen um interest rates are still good um so you know if somebody's contemplating that in the next you know year or two i think um you know it's it's uh it's a good time to look at you know what's going on and and um you know start to have those conversations um so yeah i think you pretty much covered it though great um, and I, I won't put you on point with, uh, or back into a corner asking for the range, <laughs> the range of multiples, uh, but uh, fair enough. So I'm a $10 million in rep practice. I want to think about uh, expanding through acquiring. Um, how do I think about doing that? Where do well, I start if I've never done it before? Mike, we were just on this call last week with, with one of our clients. So um do you, do you want to kind of give the high level uh, commentary? Because I think you covered that pretty well the other day. Yeah. So, um, you know, um, you really want to understand um, what you're, what you're buying and, and, and where you want to go and the reasons that you want to acquire. Um, you really want to focus um, your time um, identifying who in your market fits those criteria 
Um, what you don't want to do is just say, hey, who's buying? Let's, let's talk. That's not probably the best approach. Um, you want to you be a little bit more proactive than that. You want to understand who's going to be a good fit uh, culturally, who's going to be a good fit um, um, geographically, um, operationally. Um, and once you find those, you know, if there are 40 in the area that you could look at, once you narrow it down, you might find there's only five or so that really hit all those, those boxes that make sense for you. And then you want to start to have that conversation with, with the potential seller and understand, hey, are they interested in, in having that conversation? And if they are, now you, now you want to, what you don't want to do is go right into price. You want to understand more about them. You want to understand, you know, make sure that they fit uh, well within your organization, that there, they, that um, there are no uh, immediate red flags that uh, that would make you uh, make that practice not desirable. Um, and then, if that makes sense, then you go through the normal process that you would if you were if you were looking to sell. You'd set up an, a non-disclosure agreement. You'd gather a little bit of information from them. Um, you would then start to, once you have enough information, then you'd start to talk about price and, and terms and those kinds of things. But you really want to take it uh, very strategically and you really want to, uh, you know, you want to uh, not jump into that price conversation right off, out the gate. And I've seen that happen, unfortunately, too many times. Yeah, makes sense. You want to get married on the first day? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. You're going to say, Steve? Yeah, shocking how often that happens. Um, but, um, you know, even asking an owner, you know, in those criteria, are you looking to, you know, why are you looking to do an acquisition? Is it to expand your footprint and expand your impact of new markets? Or is it to increase your market share where you're already at? Um, you know, another common one is, is to add, you know, expertise to your team, you know, maybe in a specialty um, maybe in a leadership position in a specific market, but, you know, understanding and ranking those in terms of, you know, what, what are you hoping to get from an acquisition, um, you know, can just really be a good exercise so that then when you get it down to those, you know, four or five groups, you know, like in Mike's example, you know, you're going to look at who's a cultural fit. You're going to throw, you know, a lot out because it, it isn't a cultural fit, but then once they meet, you know, that, that kind of threshold of culture, geography, you know, the right states and, you know, are you equipped to go into a new state? Then you, then you have some criteria to rank those by, um, you know, and I think uh, Paul Welk the other day had a good example of, you know, the, the cups of coffee and, um, you know, really in that first meeting or two, um, you know, it, it really is about, you know, getting to know that owner you know, understanding, do you have, do you have commonalities in your culture and your company values, um, you know, and, and envision for where you're both going. Um, and, and then I think, you know, understanding your value proposition of, you know, what makes you, uh, an attractive partner or buyer for, you know, for that person. Um, and if you go into it, you know, understanding those things and, you know, with, with some guidance on how long is that going to take and really build that relationship, you know, kind of establish that common vision. Um, you know, then for those, um, 
for those clients that we work with, you know, then once that relationship is there, you know, we'll do a full data request. We'll look at the, the value of the business, but, um, you know, we try to make sure that that relationship's been established, that there's been some good discussion, you know, on those key topics before jumping to price. Um, and oftentimes, you know, also people want to, they want, they want to get to price, but they haven't had a discussion, you know, to get to a, a common adjusted EBITDA. Um, so they're, they're maybe talking apples and oranges, you know, Mike thinks his adjusted EBITDA is, you know, a half million dollars. And, and when I pencil it out, I think it's, you know, 350. Well, we're, we're going to have a significantly different expectation of value if we're not starting from the same place, you know, on adjusted EBITDA letter add backs. And so you really do just need to go through it, you know, methodically. Um, when we did our first couple acquisitions, you know, we got help, um, uh, you know, from, from a, a group like ourselves. Um, and, and it just kind of helped us streamline that process. And I think we were found we were a lot more successful closing deals because we weren't just going into it haphazardly. Um, so, you know, just uh, taking time to understand that process, you know, have kind of that schedule penciled out. And um, yeah, and like you said, you know, not, not rush to that marriage on the first date. Yeah, very fair. Um, you, you mentioned price as a pitfall. And uh, by, by the way, I'm asking this very selfishly. So we, and I, I, I'll, uh, I'll be super transparent <laughs> about how we're thinking of expansion. Um, we are on the eve of opening our sixth office. Um, we have a pipeline of physical therapists coming in that are ascending. Um, and to uh, director and ultimately partner roles. Um, and when I sit down with our partners um, here, we, and uh, just as an aside, I have six internal partners currently here um, in my private practice. So there are two ways that we can think about expanding. And exactly as you said, Steve, it's either you know, a new market or do we wanna increase market share in the existing market that to me is typically going to be expanding space in that area, right? Either opening a satellite office or expanding, going from a 2,000 square foot to a 4,000 square foot clinic. So um, we can do acquisitions and there are practices in our community that very much, they understand uh, what we're about. We've, you know, we share a similar storyline. Uh, it's a culture fit. Um, as you mentioned, um, and that would be, you know, uh, a, a talent acquisition for us where we're, a, we're getting an owner, they get the benefit of our, you know, our central uh, systems and marketing and everything else. Um, and there's also a de novo clinic, you know, where we just open up a new clinic, like we've been doing here for the last three or four years. Um, so it is within the acquisition other than talking about price way too early, are there other pitfalls that owners who are think are, who are aspiring acquirers, are there other pitfalls that commonly come up where you know, I'm gonna wake up on the end of a deal and say, hey, this is not working out like I thought and I missed this in the due diligence process. You know, you, you hit on culture and, and not to beat a dead horse, but um, you know, c culture is a huge one, you know, vetting, vetting that fit, uh, how are decisions made, you know, uh, how, how are incentive plans set up, 
Um, you know, what's the retention look like? Um, you know, management styles. Um, you know, we'll use a variety of tools. Um, you know, it could be DISC, it could be Strength Finders, it could be, uh, you know, uh, different management assessment to really kind of look at, you know, is this, is this kind of a leadership management fit or are they two very different organizations in, in the way they're structured, you know, in that area? Um, acquisitions, you know, are the easy part is, is, in all honesty, probably getting to LOI, the, the little bit, you know, the harder part is getting to close. And then integration, you know, is a whole nother piece in and of itself. You know, in that first 12 months, you really want to make sure that you've got the resources to successfully integrate that. And that doesn't mean throughout what they're doing and, and you know, insert what you're doing, but you want that to be a, a very smooth transition and you want to invest in that in that first 12 months. And I think, I think having a clear plan, um, you know, outlining what are all the pieces that, that need to happen um, and, and having the resources to do that. Um, you know, we, we were on a call this morning with an owner that, um, you know, we were talking about that, that very scenario an acquisition, you know, a buy versus build. Um, and, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, you know, if one helps you capture more market share in your existing clinic and you have the bandwidth to also do an acquisition, um, you know, maybe you need to stage those or, or you know, time those. Um, but the ability to do acquisitions, and, and we found this in, in building our practice, um, it, it opened up another channel for growth that de novos wouldn't have because it allowed us to go to new markets where we didn't have existing relationships, where you know we didn't uh, have knowledgeable staff, we didn't have you know th that local community presence, um, and so you know there are times that even though an acquisition may be a little bit more work, may stretch you outside your comfort zone, as you look at your five-year goals for building a stronger and more valuable practice, uh, you know one of those may start to surface as you know, hey, if we can do successful transactions, if we can grow through acquisitions, you know, uh, especially a guy like yourself that's very well connected, has, has a lot of, uh, you know, contacts with other owners, that may open a whole nother branch of growth for your organization that a de novo, you know, isn't going to. Um, so I, I think a lot of it comes back to, you know, the, the strategic planning, the, the long-term goals, for the organization and then you know resources of the organization you know not just doing a swap that sits on a shelf but understanding you know are we leveraging our strengths you know you mentioned that you've got a really strong pipeline of of you know younger leaders so i would think de novos would leverage that strength um and on the other hand like i mentioned you you probably have one of the the strongest pipelines of relationships with you know uh, with owners who, who, you know, it'd be a natural fit for them to, you know, to, to look at you um, if they've already got a relationship with you in the future. So balancing those things and ultimately, you know, making more strategic decisions on, you know, what, what, what helps you over a, a longer period of time, uh, building a more valuable practice across the board. Yeah, I would just add, um, you know, the topics pitfalls, um, 
we'd mentioned earlier in the conversation about states. Um, so if you're going to cross a state line, you, you really want to understand the regulations in that other state. It's not as simple, you know, you can't necessarily do the same things you do in your the current state you're operating in, even though it's only 20 miles across the border in the next state. So, I mean, geography does have, have a role into it, in it. And um, Steve mentioned bandwidth. Um, this is a huge concept um, that a lot of folks don't understand. Acquisitions consume a ton of resources, even at the larger practices that are buying, um, you know, a, a relatively smaller practice. Everyone needs to look at, you know, this practice. Um, every department needs to be involved and understand that practice. Um, it is a huge uh, resource uh, utilization to go through an acquisition. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, a single location practice will burn just as almost as much bandwidth as, you know, something with five or 10 locations uh, to get through the process. So you really have to start to think through, you know, what, you know, uh, do you have the bandwidth to do this? If you don't, you know, there are some, there are some third parties that you can bring in to help with certain parts of it. But, you know, ultimately, it's a lot of work uh, to do one acquisition. So it's got to be the right one. And you really want to make sure that you're spending your time and wisely. That's great. Um, thank you both for that. The so for our listeners, um, what's the best way for them to <clears throat> more about uh, what 8150 advisors is about and, and get in contact with you? Sure. So our website's pretty straightforward. It's 8150advisors.com. And if you uh, click on, you know, our, our, I think it's our team or our leadership team, um, you know, they can peek at our bios and, and kind of learn a little bit more about, you know, the specialties amongst our team. Um, my email is, is just Steve at 8150advisors and Mike is, is Mike P at 8150advisors. Um, and you're not going to make them spell out a uh, Pekatowski. <laughs> it'd be, it'd be a good way to screen, screen out people. <laughs> be very dedicated to get that one right. That's great. Yeah, and, um, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're happy to talk to people if, if they, you know, have questions. Um, most of our, you know, most of our calls start out with a, you know, Hey, I've got this scenario and um, just want to talk through it and, and, you know, Mike, myself, uh, you know, our entire team are happy to talk to people if, if we can help them out along the way in, in their journey. And just to clarify, Steve, uh, you do both merger or you do uh, both acquisition and help practice owners sell as well. Exactly. We do. Um, we, we kind of break it up into two buckets. One is, uh, you know, strategic growth being more intentional on, on building value whether that's through acquisitions or whether that's through, uh, you know, executing on strategic plans or creating a better strategic plan. And then um, Mike and I focus more on the sell side, um, but we do have clients that are both, uh, both buying and, and selling and um, we do both sides of that. Great. Uh, any parting last words, words of wisdom for owners that are out there listening to this? You know, I, I think we, we touched on it, but, um, you know, being prepared um, 
in any aspect, um, you know, whether you're looking to do acquisitions, um, you know, really stepping back from that and, you know, preparing for that process. Um, and, and just as importantly, if you're looking to sell your, your practice, um, you know, understanding your value, understanding the options for selling your business, what that sales process looks like, you know, as Mike mentioned, um, you know, most of, most of the sell side owners that we work with, um, you know, it, it probably is right in that 12 month range from, you know, when they, when they first, you know, start to act on that and, and start to get ready and, and, you know, understand the value, um, you know, it's about a year before that transaction is actually closing. And, um, you know, if they're using that time effectively and, and also if they're, you know, looking at the value of their business as they're building it, um, you know, that was a, that was a huge turning point for us and helping us to clarify, you know, that, that decision that you are just presenting yourself, you know, looking at the value of our business and then looking at, you know, uh, how can we best leverage our team to build value? Um, but that, that makes that transition in the future easier. Um, but uh, other than that, surely appreciate you having us on and, uh, you know, you're doing, doing a lot of, uh, good by sharing, you know, the expertise and the people you've uh, had on lately and, and appreciate being included in that. Yeah. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Steve, Stolzer and uh, Mike Pekatowski, everybody from 8150 Advisors. Thank you both again for uh, sharing. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Chad.